today on Ag News Daily. It is a different time of year, and so, you know, that'll be hard for Chicago and Kansas City wheat to necessarily accomplish, you know, as we work into what is likely to be a larger harvest due to higher prices last fall. Good afternoon and welcome to another Monday episode of the Ag News Daily Podcast. It's Ashton Carr joined once again by Delaney Howell. And I've got to say, Delaney, it is wet here in the DFW area and I am tired. So it's just a kind of a slow moving day for me. Well, it's uh, sunny and hot, so you're going to love that when you get into Des Moines tomorrow. It'll be nice and sticky and warm for you. But uh, yeah, it sounds like a couple of areas here across the uh, northern middle portion, I should say, of the United States is getting some rain. Unfortunately, we're not getting any here in Iowa. We could probably start to use some. The crop could definitely use some. But uh, I tell you what, we've seen some pretty hot temperatures all across here. I think I saw something earlier today that said, I think it was North Dakota. It might've been in South Dakota. I can't remember now. Had triple digit temperatures over the weekend and are continued to experience, expected to experience some of those triple digit temps here in the next two weeks. So that is quite warm. Yeah, that is very warm. And you know, I'm kind of surprised that here in Texas, we haven't seen too warm of temperatures. I mean, I think it's just because we've been getting quite a bit of rain, of course, but I'm honestly shocked and, but I'm, I'm pretty happy about it. I'm not too excited to experience a Texas summer. Well, it's better than an Iowa summer, I'd say. I guess you're right. I guess you're right, Delaney. But kicking things off, talking about some news here, not a whole lot going on, but I do have some word from the U.S. Foreign Ag Service as they say that milk production is expected to continue increasing in Australia this year as drought-breaking rains and excellent pastures boost production. In its semi-annual report, the FAS office says some producers are still expected to exit or shift to beef production, which is holding back production growth for from early forecasts. Fluid milk exports from Australia are expected to increase 15% with strong demand from China. Meanwhile, the agency says Japan is planning for limited butter and nonfat dry milk imports, maintaining its tariff rate quota volumes to levels as low as 2013 to clear record stocks built during the pandemic. Although this isn't super exciting news or anything to get us started here on this Monday afternoon, it is dairy month, so I felt like it was necessary to just bring to the audience's attention. Oh, I didn't realize it was dairy month. That means I need to eat additional ice cream. Oh, yeah. I I made a post on the Global Ag Network um, Instagram and Facebook, Twitter, whatever on Friday because it was National Cheese Day. So I've got us covered, I think, because I know that you're a a dairy lover just like myself. So I would die if I couldn't eat meat and cheese. Those are really my two staple items here. Oh, I'm right there with you. I mean, along with ice cream, like you said, I'm a big sweets person. So yeah, me too. Well, all right. I'll be eating some ice cream to celebrate dairy month. But uh, let's see here. It is Dairy Month, like you mentioned there, Ashton. It's also World Pork Expo this week. So, folks, we will be hitting up uh, the World Pork Expo this week. It's in the 
the state fairgrounds here in Des Moines, Iowa. Ashton's flying in tomorrow from Texas, so we'll get to see her. But we'll be talking, I'm sure, a lot about a lot different issues going on right now in the swine industry, including the rebuilding of uh, China's hog herd there in African swine fever. This piece of news isn't necessarily related to that directly, but we're continuing to see U.S. exports of corn, sorghum, and soybeans headed to China. USDA said that exports of corn and sorghum specifically remain strong the week of May 21st to the 27th, according to the latest trade data put forth by the FAS. It said the U.S. shipped about 1.1 million metric tons of corn. And yes, that was the week that we reported weekly export sales numbers pretty much every day or uh, export sales, flash sales pretty much every day. But coupled with that piece of news here, we've seen China, Chinese soybean imports year to date here rose 12.8% to about 38.234 million tons. And China has continued to import, not maybe as much as we'd like to have seen here. And we'll talk a little bit more about this with Angie Setzer coming up during our market segment. But China's May soybean imports sold about 9.6 million tons, which is unfortunately a little bit lower than where we'd like to see them, especially since they are still working through some of these phase one trade deal commitments. Well, Delaney, another kind of topic of discussion that we have, of course, been paying a lot of attention to is the debate surrounding infrastructure. And right before Memorial Day, we talked about it before there was the Memorial Day recess. But now that we have gone through the holiday, President Biden and Senator Shelley Moore Caputo, the chief GOP negotiator, met again on Friday to discuss an infrastructure package. But yet again, no agreement was reached. The two sides are still reportedly far apart. And a a separate bill was introduced by several Democrats on Friday. Earlier in the week on Thursday, Illinois Congresswoman Sherry Bustos said that she remains optimistic about a compromise with Republicans and credited Caputo for her work. Bustos does not expect bipartisan support of Biden's American Families Plan, but does believe compromise can be reached on the American Jobs Plan. If not, she says that Democrats will proceed with the reconciliation process to get them both through, although that route would not require Republican support, and Bustos was the featured speaker at the National Grain and Feed Association convention, and so we kind of got that information there, but I mean, that's really the latest after the Memorial Day recess, and I mean, I think that this is all that I've heard so far. I don't know about you, Delaney. Yeah, I have not been keeping close enough tabs on it, Ashton, so I don't know a whole lot more than you do. Well, that's a little unfortunate. I think that people are getting a little bit antsy because, I mean, this has been going on for quite some time. I mean, the topic of infrastructure was one that Biden talked about in his campaign. And so we're Mm -hmm. just, of course, seeing that carry through here. But there seems to be a lot of disconnect. There certainly does. I would agree with that as well. Uh, You know, to be honest, Ashton, I am a little short on news today. I don't think I have a whole lot of other news. I really don't either, Delaney, other than what's been going on in the commodity markets. What do you say we hop over and start talking numbers there? Yes, let's absolutely do that. And actually, it's okay that we are keeping news a little bit shorter today because we have a great conversation here coming up with Angie Setzer in just one moment. But before we get to that, let's 
chat markets and where they left off today. We saw in the overnight session, things pushed significantly higher across corn and soybeans. And we gave up some of those gains in especially the soybean pits today. But starting things out here in the July corn contract down three and a half cents to close at 679 and a quarter. The Dece up 11 and a quarter cent to close at 602 and three quarters. Soybeans today, as I mentioned, gave up some of those early gains with the July contract shedding 23 and a half cents to close at 1560 and a quarter. November up four and a half cents to close at 1440. Chicago wheat lower today with the July contract down seven and three quarters cents to close at 680. This September down six cents to close at 686 and a half. Hopping over to take a look at the livestock market, we had some mixed trade today with the August live cattle contract down 30 cents to close at 117.77 and a half. The October down 35 cents to close at 123.70. Feeder cattle definitely mixed today with the August contract up 27 and a half cents to close at 140.20, excuse me, 150.20. The September down 12 and a half cents to close at 152.62 and a half. And in lean hogs, we put in some fresh contract highs in the deferred contracts all the way out until 2022 here. July up $1.50 today to close at 122.10. The August up $1.18, excuse me, up $1.32 to close at 118.90. And wrapping things out here with the class three dairy milk futures weakness today is the July contract shed 22 cents to close at 17.64. The August down five cents to close at 18.39. Ashton, without further ado, let's kick it over to our conversation with Angie Setzer. Well, folks, for today's Hashtag Market Monday, we are joined by Angie Setzer at Goddess of Grain on Twitter and Vice President for Citizens Elevator. Angie, how you doing today? Good. How are you? I am pretty fantastic. Angie, I always like to get a good take from you on what weather is like up in your neck of the woods and how crops are looking. So let's start there. Yeah, crops are looking good, um, considering all things considered. Our our lawn would be rated uh, probably less than fifty percent good to excellent, though we're we're pretty dry. I, I hate to complain about dryness, seeing what's going on in North Dakota and and you know places like that. But we're also, if you look at Michigan on the drought map, we are in a drought, um, and that's odd for us. We've been exceptionally wet. Uh, the last two springs, last three springs. Um, I think this is the first spring since we've moved back to Michigan here. And we've been back for almost years that we haven't had our pasture flood out um, at least once. And so we're super dry. Uh, fingers crossed we're supposed to get, you know, between a half inch to an inch of rain here um, over the next couple, three days with some thunderstorms and things like that. And so uh, fingers crossed that that happens. I mean, crops look phenomenally well, um, all things considered. Uh, I think the heat's kind of helped them. We're not used to having this much heat this early, um, but we definitely could could use the rain. Um, you know, planting went off without a hitch for just about everyone. And uh, and so we can't complain on that, but you know, I think like anyone else in the Corn Belt, like, okay, okay, Mother Nature, time for, time for some moisture. So we're, mm-hmm. we're hoping that that shows up and you know as i speak i'm looking out the window and and we're getting a decent rain um you know hopefully fingers crossed it it sticks around for more than just a couple minutes 
Yeah. And I think that's kind of where it seems like a lot of folks are at, regardless of where you're at in the country. I mean, definitely the Western part of the United States is a lot drier, but you know, we were talking to, or have been watching closely on Twitter, some folks in uh, like the Dakota areas that got frost during Memorial day weekend. Now they're getting hit with some pretty extreme heat. So wheat is a concern there for those folks. Uh, how much pressure is being added to the wheat markets right now? Or, or is that weather scare for wheat specifically kind of factored out already? No, I, I don't think it is. I think if you look around the world, I mean, you've got to kind of keep in mind that we have three distinct different types of wheat. Now, obviously, you've got wheat. Everyone likes to, to talk about just wheat in general, which is Chicago wheat. That's the more active market. And that tends to represent the soft red wheat crop, which is the eastern corn belt you know, down into the, the Gulf. And then you've got Kansas City wheat that that uh, represents the Southern Plains wheat crop. That's your hard red winter wheat. And then you've got Minneapolis wheat, which is your spring wheat crop. Um, you know, and if you look at Minneapolis wheat coming into today, you know, Minneapolis wheat had gained $1.45 in about six sessions. It had one session where it had this massive drop because you've got to remember Minneapolis wheat is a lot thinner traded than like your Chicago wheat and even your Kansas City wheat. Um, but we did have one session where it dropped off pretty hard, but it's since recovered and rallied back. Um, you know, you're not only looking at really bad wheat conditions right now, we're expecting conditions to drop in tonight's crop progress report. Um, but you, you know, you're, you're looking at really bad conditions in the Dakotas, parts of Montana, um, Minnesota, which is where the, the majority of our spring wheat crop is grown. Now the Canadian prairies, you know, we, once you move across the border into the North, you are seeing, uh, some pretty substantial rainfall up there, which is helping, but you are seeing some real concerns over dryness in Russia, you know, in other parts of the Northern hemisphere spring wheat crop. And so spring wheat has its own little niche sort of demand structure, you know, and, and you really just can't interchange wheat. That's just not everyone thinks, you know, wheat is wheat, but that's, that's not really how it works. You have high pro and low pro and, and hard and soft and, you know, different types of wheat. And so Minneapolis is likely to continue to receive a boatload of the attention in the marketplace uh, simply because the other areas, the other two wheat types that you're seeing that soft red wheat crop in the Eastern corn belt down into the Delta and that hard Hard red wheat crop in the Southern Plains, both of which are winter crops, you know, are seeing relatively decent weather conditions um, and are actually getting started to roll into harvest. And so you'll probably see that spread between the three wheats continue to um, really change. And this will be something that we really see kind of further compound in the cash market as we move ahead. Um, and so this whole entire wheat market structure is going to be one that is is going to, you know, really shock some people, probably teach some folks some valuable lessons, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in the market itself. Um, you know, and we're not, a lot of folks want to say this is like 07, 08, um, I believe that was when Minneapolis wheat traded into the $20 mark. I'm not saying that's not possible by any means because anything is possible, but um, it is a different time of year. And so, you know, that'll be hard for Chicago and Kansas City wheat to necessarily accomplish, you know, as we work into what is likely to be a larger harvest due to higher prices last fall, you know, in reasonably decent spring weather, um, you know, but the one thing that we'll kind of see soak up any additional supplies in those other two types of wheat is corn feeding. Mm-hmm. I mean, at one point today, Chicago, July wheat on the Chicago was cheaper than July corn. And that that's 
doesn't happen very often. Um, and so it's it's going to be fun. It's factored in. Probably have a long way to go before we factor in the true supply and demand if the rain doesn't really kind of kick into high gear here in the northern plains um, and soon. And so it's it's definitely going to be one of those things that we probably tell our, our kids about someday. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's the, the crazy thing, too, is, you know, talking about wheat being a substitute for corn. It certainly is. And you look at July compared to the Dece here, there's still a premium obviously being built into uh, these front month contracts, but new crop corn is catching up pretty quickly, Angie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this spread move today was pretty phenomenal, right? Um, And I think you're you're, you know, you're, you're seeing a lot of things happen in this market structure that we're shifting into where's the risk need to be and what is, what is going to happen? You know, old crop corn, it can likely be displaced in the, the ration by old crop um, or by what'll be old crop, but it's new, it's newly mm-hmm. harvested wheat, um, you know, and so it'll, that'll probably stretch out a bit of our demand in, in old crop corn, um, it same can be said for soybeans and, and now you're seeing these new crop values really kind of pick up pace and, and, um, you know, the market structure to a certain extent change on, on where the risk premium is being placed. And Angie, I know that weather has probably the biggest impact here on what happens for corn and soybeans at this point in the growing season, but outside of that here, are you bullish corn and soybeans long-term? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're supported. They're going to remain supported long-term, um, especially corn. You you can't ignore what's taking place with China. You can't ignore the fact that Brazil has lost, you know, upwards of, of 20 million metric ton um, since the growing season started, depending on which estimate you you follow and, and where we actually end up. You know, the the world has, uh, has uh, seen this huge increase in demand, you know, via China and, and, and you can't ignore that. You know what I mean? That's mm-hmm. definitely made the situation a very precarious one. Um, I, there are a lot of things that are taking place in the old crop market structure that, that make me wonder if we are as tight from a supply standpoint as, is what we'd anticipated, you know, talking about new crop kind of gaining on, on old crop there. I mean, we've seen the July, November soybean spread uh, come in 90 cents plus um, from its recent high here, a couple, three weeks. We've seen the uh, July, December corn spread come in, uh, you know, well over of almost 50 cents uh, from the high side too, you know. And so so there's some some indication that perhaps we have a little bit more in the way of old crop sloshing around, or at the very least, the, the market has done its job and forced it into the pipeline. But even so, you know, we're, if we make it through, if, if we make it through by the skin of our teeth without a, a big production issue or a production issue in general, you know, here in this crop year, and let's say the USDA is accurate in what they're saying, you know, when it comes to to carry out and and, and projections for new crop and things of that nature, you know, you're in a two-year market. Um, so I'm, I'm not necessarily overly bullish for like these 22, November 22 at their, their current price structure, but I also am not bearish there, mm-hmm. um, you know, unless something big changes. And, and I feel like I repeat myself every time I'm on and I try not to be <laughs> Debbie Downer, you know what I mean? But it all hinges on China. Right. Um, China continue to take massive amounts of, of, of product, you know, and, and so I would say the one thing that kind of concerns me a little bit is what's been going on with their soybean demand as of late um, and their, their new crop soybean demand. I mean, Brazil's going to have a pretty long tail on the crop that they're exporting currently when it comes to beans. We've seen a lot of, um, 
interior basis, like today, interior basis at one processor dropped 75 cents today alone. Um, you know, and so that that's weird. That's not something that happens in a market structure that is 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 running on fumes or, or doesn't have enough supply available to them to make it through. And so one of the things that that is concerning is the negative Chinese crush margin that we've seen, the hog prices falling off there and some concern over what we're looking at, you know, when it comes to, to long-term Chinese demand. You know, one of my bigger worries is that we do see Brazilian beans available into harvest here. Um, you know, and there's been a lot of talk that the corn export program is going to be heavily loaded fourth quarter and quarter one of next year. Um, so calendar quarters, not marketing year, Q4 and Q1. And so where do beans fit in? And so one of my bigger worries that I've been talking to a lot of guys about is that, you know, we're very bullish on this idea that, you know, China's in and they're buying big and things of that nature. But, you know, if you look at their their actual demand here, June forward, it's actually been lukewarm at best out of Brazil. Like they've taken in a crap load of beans um, from Brazil thus far. Don't get me wrong, but Brazil is still going to have a decent amount of beans available as we work our way through the end of the summer just as the U.S. tries to ramp up with whatever their harvest looks like. Now, granted, we have no idea right. what our harvest is going to look like. So that's going to keep the market very well supported there, you know, for an extended period of time. But one of the things that does worry me is that China just kind of lays back and and takes whatever business they feel like taking. They're no longer overly aggressive because they've stockpiled what they needed. Um, and then suddenly we're back into the end of Q1 of the calendar year for next year is when Brazil starts harvesting soybeans again. Um, and so, you know, there's just a lot of moving pieces to pay attention to. Like I said, I'm not, I'm not anything. I wouldn't be able to tell you right now if I were bullish or bearish. I'm just more of a, how does it work for your operation? Um, where are you at from a hedge standpoint? How are you protected if the bottom were to fall from out from underneath this thing? But how are you also not overly aggressive in selling, you know, to make sure that you can still kind of take part if, if the market continues to move, move higher, and so right now I'm just kind of almost agnostic to the market, just in the sense that I know these are really good prices. I know that farmers can can hopefully make some decent money as long as they can guarantee they've got the crop production. Right. Um, you know, and and so that's really where we're we're sitting now. I think we stay supported, but you know, weather is is going to be the driver and and all of it for the next four weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've talked Five to a weeks. lot of guys too, Angie, that are wanting to get aggressive because prices are so good, but they're nervous because they don't want to get too sold and then have to deal with, yeah. uh, you know, buying back bushels or whatnot. So it's an interesting dynamic that we're in right now, but, uh, you tweeted this I out always- the other day, yes. just to switch tracks here. You said, we still have three other large scale meat packers that make up some 80% of the nation's beef and pork supplies. And you said, read that again, slowly in reference to the JBS issue, we'll call it, that went on last week. Yeah. Give us a little bit more behind that tweet there. Yeah. Well, that was a, it was a quote from a a meat uh, market expert, I believe from Ohio State uh, University. And I I don't think they were intending to come off, you know, like they did, but the fact that we're, we're really looking at four major meat uh, packers. And I think this is something that a lot of folks have, have seen and are, are complaining about, but I feel like it's it's we get a lot of lip service out of Washington, D.C. when it comes to, oh, I'll look at it. Well, where the heck were you when it was happening? Um, and and so I, I would have to say that, you know, one of my biggest fears in production agriculture is that we start to see us really move this way. 
And so this gets away from the whole entire market conversation, right? But if you see continued consolidation in the industry, in any industry, you know, you you begin to become a pawn of, of whatever that industry is and, and how they're working, you know, you as the producer. And so that's one of the things that just absolutely blows me away about the cattle industry and the hog industry, you know, livestock industry in general. Like, I know you just don't start a processing plant on the corner. Like it's, it takes a, a ton of, of effort and a ton of regulation and a ton of, of everything. Um, you know, where my frustration comes into play is that we've allowed this consolidation to kind of take place. The people that were supposed to quote unquote protect us have just kind of turned a blind eye because the the checks from the lobbyists have, have cleared the bank and they're continuing to allow things to take place that are kind of putting the the the, the producer and the consumer um, both in the same court to a certain extent or both to the same corner and the idea that, you know, the producer producer has no available, you know, he doesn't have a very deep pool in which to sell the product. And then the consumer doesn't have a very deep pool in which to purchase the product. And of course, you know, these smaller local packing plants are trying to, to change that, you know, but when it comes down to it, you know, when we can just easily, you know, as though it means nothing, say that, oh, the JBS thing isn't a big deal. The other three large packers that handle 80% Three, you know, so we're talking four people handling 100% of of the majority of retail uh, beef or or retail uh, livestock production in in the processing in the the country. I mean, there's something big there. And so, you know, part of my goal in the future is try to work my hardest to make sure that we maintain, you know, this level of relevancy for not only the mid-sized farmer, but also the mid-sized, you know, elevator commercial you know, and, and try to do everything that we can to kind of keep everyone on a, an even playing field. Because, you know, I, I would say if nothing else over the last year, what it's really taught us is that the big dogs have a lot of insight into market structure that the small dogs don't. And they they use that to their um, benefit, you know, which, duh, of course they would. Um, and so one of my bigger worries is that we start to see that happen in the grain side, you know, with with what's taking place in livestock. And And I'm just, you know, it's kind of one of those tweets that hits you right upside or one of those quotes that hits you right upside the head and you have to share it with the world and be like, you guys, we have to wake up, um, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and we have to try to figure something out here because this isn't going to be sustainable long term for the small to midsize producer to survive. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if uh, Michigan has any of this legislation, but Iowa and Nebraska both have passed legislation to start to entice the small Packers, the local guys yeah. again. So I think that there are issues, obviously, that need to get resolved. And and I think a lot of the cattle guys are feeling that pinch, but it's not yeah. going to be fixed overnight. That's for sure. Yeah. For sure. And that's and I'm that's my biggest thing is that our side, the the cattle side, the livestock side is not going to be fixed overnight. But I think it's handwriting on the wall for the grain side if we mm. aren't careful. Um, and so that's, you know, my, my biggest concern, you know, as we move ahead is that we start to really see these big players, you know, put us in a situation where it's bad. And then suddenly we're trying to fish behind the net and say, oh gosh, this isn't working for us, you know, which is what, you know, there are a lot of livestock producers that complained when you saw a lot of these mergers and and consolidations take place, but no one really listened or took them seriously. And so I'm hoping that we can kind of learn that lesson, work to improve that and, and fix the problems that are there. And then also work, uh, you know, to kind of try to avoid that when it comes to to the grain side of things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Angie, unfortunately, we're out of time, but this was a great discussion today. Thank you again so much for joining us today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I always enjoy coming on.
Well, again, a big thank you there to Angie for coming on and chatting markets today. Always a pleasure, Ashton, to have her on. She's always got a lot of good insight into what's going on in the ag industry. Absolutely. I always love listening into those conversations, learning more and more each Monday. And I hope that our listeners also are learning more when they tune in. And we're going to be having some really educational episodes coming up here as we're going to be attending some seminars at World Pork Expo. So folks, you'll have to be sure to tune in at agnewsdaily.com or wherever you get your podcasts. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.